A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Okay, welcome to episode 40 of The Market Maker. And today there's just so much to talk about. It's been an incredibly busy week in the markets. Um, everything from the S&P 500 Thursday night printing fresh record highs again. In fact, seven consecutive days of gains for the major U.S. benchmark index. It's the longest winning streak since June 2021. So, yeah, whatever grand issue, what economy rolling over? Uh, the market just continues to remain pretty bullish at the moment. Earnings are key. Um, component of that. And we're definitely going to talk a little bit about that with specific focus on the social media names. And uh, we have things like the Bank of England, uh, massive disconnect, in fact, between the rates market and the FX market. The disagreement being, do we believe that the Bank of England is serious about hiking rates as soon as November? Certain big banks like Goldman Sachs think so, but the FX market is putting some considerable worry about the fact that the health secretary in the UK, Sajid Javid, this week said COVID, that could go up to 100,000 in the coming weeks, in particular, given the spread amongst the somewhat still unvaccinated and the logistically uh, problematic problem of high schools um, trying to get that 12 to 17 demographic vaccinated. So a lot of stuff going on, but we're going to focus on kind of three main themes to give you a flavor. I'm going to talk about the social media names because Snap, so Snapchat, which I'm sure a lot of our younger listeners are very familiar with, uh, the company shares tanked last night. I mean, seriously tanked. They were down in excess of 22%. And that reverberated out to other associated names, Facebook, Twitter, and the like. They were also down 6%. So I want to talk to who I have on the call with me today, Eddie, a little bit about that. And also tie in Apple. And then he's back, Donald Trump, spacking it up and trying to spread the social truths. Uh, we're going to have a look at why he's doing that. And also, we work another meaningful SPAC that's happened this week. 
Then we're going to have a look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin record high again, and that's been supported somewhat by this launch of the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF. Valkyrie is another one coming out today, and that's really underpinned that rise. So we're going to delve into basically what is an ETF and what does this mean for the crypto space. And then we're going to have a look at Tesla. Uh, pretty phenomenal moves in Tesla, in fact. Um, people were panicking. And Michael Burry was all over that move a few months back, but their stock has just surged of late. It's up 7% on the week, and it's up 65% since May's low, so incredible. But they had their earnings, so I want to find out as well with Eddie, why is that happening? How did those numbers perform? So that's what's on the agenda, amongst other things, I'm sure. So to kick things off, Eddie, talk to me a little bit about, about Snap. And, and why they were down so heavily. Yeah, Snap lost almost a quarter of their share price. And to be honest, share, shares in Snap have done really, really well this year. Um, I think they were up, they're still up about 52% uh, as of Thursday's market close. But Evan Spiegel, uh, the kind of chief, chief executive of, of Snap, really just blamed Apple. <laughs> Easy way out. Um, they missed their earnings 1.07 billion versus a 1.1 billion expected. And this was really driven by the de- deceleration of the monetization, try and say that after a few drinks, uh, of users. So basically the ARPU, so the average revenue per user uh, is, is falling or there's a deceleration uh, in did that you just, sort of metric. Did you just say ARPU? I, I did just say RP, yes. <laughs> Average RP. revenue uh, user. Very popular metric, uh, particularly with kind of social media platforms. But yeah, in, interesting uh, sounding metric, that's you. for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, he essentially came out and, and blamed Apple. Uh, and, and since they've introduced this new privacy policy, uh, which was between April and June, it really became very difficult for advertisers to understand the campaign performance of the ads that they're essentially running. Uh, So this really dragged uh, on Snap's revenue. He also cited some kind of broader macro challenges that we obviously know a lot about by now, the coronavirus pandemic, which is rearing its ugly head. You know, you just mentioned that, um, you know, the UK situation, which is terrible. My brother's in uh, Morocco, right now and they just banned flights to and from Morocco. So he's got an interesting journey home via Milan. Um, I was actually uh, in the city having dinner with a friend last night uh, and that was packed. So I think, you know, the, the cases are going up um, and it'll you know be a tough winter period, but I feel like people are trying to move on with their lives. So the, uh, yeah, the, the restaurant I was in last night was, was pretty packed, um, but he was, yeah, Spiegel was uh, essentially, uh, citing the advertisers' supply chain issues and the same rhetoric, labor shortages uh, as well. Um, but I really wanted to just drill down into the Apple kind of um, kind of angle here, and it's really again exercising its monopoly powers and trying to build and gain market share and protect that. So, masters kind of protecting users' privacy. If you've kind of experienced, you have an iPhone. If you've opted into an app, it would have said, do you want tracking on this to personalize your ads and things like that? Um, But now, you know, and you can opt out and then everyone's thinking, wow, this is great for me. I can now control and opt in to these kind of advertising 
things and which is beneficial to me, but actually, you know, beneficial to the consumer, another huge barrier to entry for competitors, right? So Apple's search ads has actually tripled in market share in the last six months and is on track to generate around 5 billion in revenues this year. And according to Evercore via an FT article, this is expected to grow 20 to 20 billion within three years. So I'm not sure that many people had that in their Apple valuation, another kind of lever that they're pulling. Um, so iPhone users, um, marketing spend is forecasted to double to 118 billion. So what this means you know, for, for you and what you're going to see is, let's say you type in, for example, Twitter on your app store, what this, you know, what Apple are doing are essentially selling that kind of top result, search result. So let's say you search for Twitter, but it will recommend you Facebook, for example. Um, so as well as kind of protecting your privacy, they're really just growing their market share, increasing the barriers to entry. And this is having a big impact on you know, the likes of Snapchat and probably Facebook and, and Google as well. So again, what this means for these types of companies is it prevents them essentially assessing the performance and the effectiveness of their targeted ads, essentially. So if your business is uh, basically uh, derived from generating revenues in these kind of uh, kind of areas, then this is yeah, quite worrying for you at the moment. Yeah, and I was, I was just literally trying to search now as you were talking, because I'm pretty sure I read, and I don't know the details, that Facebook was planning to rebrand themselves with a brand new name. And so this makes a heck of a lot of sense, because Piers and I were talking about all the challenges that Facebook is confronting at the moment. And obviously, it's a bit of a dying beast in the current form that it is. And I know um, Zuckerberg's definitely trying to tap into this metaverse idea Um and yeah, it's just interesting. I guess he's being forced into that somewhat as Apple and pulling these moves, I guess. Yeah, so uh, on that, I think it, it was a story out of The Verge that Facebook, the, so the parent company are going to be rebranding. The app will stay as Facebook, but it's kind of like akin to Google Alphabet. So the Alphabet is, is the parent company. And I think the rumored name is Horizon, something like that. Uh, but I think it's going to be announced next week. But it's funny how, yeah, all these types of, you know, Facebook particularly are trying to move away from, you know, some of the kind of negative connotations that's been instilled from this algorithm and the kind of hate hate speech, uh, which is kind of akin to our next story, isn't it, Ant? Yeah, so, yeah, talk me through, I guess, for the benefit of everyone listening, um, what we're referring to is Donald Trump, of course, the former US president is back. You probably got peppered with stories um, yesterday or uh, we were recording this on a Friday, so on Thursday of this week. And the reason why is that he's launching a new social media company called Truth Social. Uh, and But it was done via a SPAC. And I'm just conscious of the fact that I know the SPAC space has been blowing up really since the pandemic took hold. But Eddie, it's probably worth you re-explaining exactly what a SPAC is first. Yeah, absolutely. So SPAC, funny name, but is essentially stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Bit of a mouthful. But it's essentially this blank check shell company that kind of floats around uh, and looks for a target to then merge with. So it's, a, it's an alternative way of a company going public. So... You've got private companies just like a WeWork that we'll talk about later, 
or um, you know Trump, uh, Trump's essentially outfit, they are private companies and they're looking for a way to go list on a stock market. So there's a few forms that you can do, an IPO, which is probably the most well-known one, an initial public offering, which involves you know, a lot of kind of banking scrutiny, a roadshow, book building process, et cetera. There's a direct listing, which kind of bypasses the investment banks. And then there's this special purpose acquisition company. And they really uh, were in massive kind of demand and popularity last year. The volumes have slowed quite a lot in terms of kind of gross volume, SPAC volume, um, just because some kind of regulatory scrutiny on those kind of uh, more subjective SPACs, if you like. Uh, But it's just another alternative way uh, of going public, essentially. Um, But yeah, Trump is now going public. So it's (laughs) Digital World Acquisition Corp. So this is the essentially the SPAC vehicle that's bringing public uh, Donald Trump's media group, essentially. And they absolutely skyrocketed yesterday uh, in trading. Um, there was, they were up more than 350%, uh, and it was halted multiple times uh, due to volatility. Um, and of course, it's just Trump's name really driving this stock price. Um, but the, there's a kind of interesting retail kind of theme to this where it was actually among the top 10 uh, most popular names on Reddit. And if you remember from last year and this year, AMC, GameStop. So, you know, it could be that Trump's new vehicle is now the new retail favorite. It's just, it's just crazy how my assumption would be that the mob in that sense, maybe I'm wrong in terms of demographic. I thought they'd be anti-Trump. I find it hard to see politically them aligned to pump that. But I guess you know, with these Reddit pump and dumps, it's just about catching the momentum and the pump, right? And and making some dough on the back of that rather than an ideology of what probably that whole Wall Street bets might have started out more philosophical in its approach. Whereas now I think there's so many people in it just to make a quick buck, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I always find it kind of really counterintuitive, you know, the kind of akin to what you just talked about in terms of getting at the suits and things like that. With a special purpose acquisition company, the promote essentially gets 20% of the shares of the entity, which in most cases is a couple hundred million for literally doing nothing. I think the minimum contribution is something like $25,000. So if retail is capturing this momentum, of course, uh, through you know meme stocks, they're essentially not really getting at the suit, but they're making the promote a ton of money. Um, so it kind of doesn't sit well with me. Um, but the interesting thing about this Trump spike is you know you can go and find the uh, I guess investor presentation if you like and the company overview of Trump Media and Technology Group. There's no CEO. There's no financial projections. There's no employees. Okay. There's no, well, there's a business plan, but there's no roadmap. I think I saw the business plan and it was like, yeah, we're going to have streaming TV services and we're going to take over Disney. We're going to knock them out of the space. (laughs) Some of it was, yeah, punchy. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it's, so the, the overall kind of conglomerate is Trump Media and Technology Group. So they've got kind of three, well, elements to it, if you, if you call it that. They've got Truth Social, 
which is essentially the app that's going to compete with Twitter, Facebook, not ban people, uh, you know, and even in the kind of, uh, you know, the, the deck talks about how, you know, the Taliban Twitter account is still active, but Trump got banned. Um, but it's going to be, you know, it's you know projected to be a, uh, a competitor of Twitter and Facebook. And then there's kind of uh, the Trump Media Technology Group Plus, which is going to apparently compete with Netflix and Disney Plus. Um, then there's a long, long-term opportunity tech stack where they're somehow going to disrupt Amazon Web Services, Azure, <laughs> Stripe, and Google Cloud. And then hey, that's, where, the that's where it lost me. That's where it lost me. I mean, through social, you know, Trump's got such a good following, you know, and he's trying to monetize that, right? Like in the deck, he's got 146 million total follow- followers across all channels. Fine. You know, that's going to be a kind of conservative app where it's going to capture a lot of that kind of, I guess, animosity and that type of stuff. And that that kind of makes sense to me in the future. But kind of disrupting Amazon Web Services, Stripe, I'm like, where is that, where is that going to come from? Um, yeah. So, But it was interesting looking at that deck for sure. So some interesting things on my side from the politics from within this is that one thing I read last night is that Trump actually incorporated, I think it was Trump Media Tech, immediately after losing to Biden. So this this isn't you know this is a very calculated move here from Trump and the timing being that the midterms are happening pretty much this time next year and as per usual in history what tends to happen is when a new president comes in they come in at the highest point of popularity and that decreases over time and that's what we've been seeing with Biden he's had certain challenges and he's still facing those challenges right now over getting the reconciliation bill through, the new spending plans. It looks like these corporation tax hikes and things are not going to happen. He just doesn't have the support. And it likely is, is that Congress is going to fracture as this, the Republicans take back most likely the Senate, for example. And so timing is key. And, and one of the things you, you said there is, is Trump still remains banned, obviously, from Twitter, Facebook. He has done since those really horrific scenes we saw on Capitol Hill at the beginning of the, the year. And, you know, he was accused of incitement and things like this. But as we know, Twitter specifically, but social media is the key strategy for Trump to galvanize his base. Trump actually started a blog. Did you ever read his blog? No, you didn't. Because no one did. Because <laughs> who the heck reads blogs? I mean, when it comes to social media to be consumed in that way, I mean, give him credit i mean not the content of what he said but the mechanism of delivery to hit his base to fire them up it certainly made a significant difference and so i i think a lot of this is really geared into that and an interesting thing i saw from a poll by the hill um, which is one of the most followed kind of political um, papers in the u.s they did a poll and basically even though he hasn't yet given his intention to run in 2024 he probably will. Uh, the point is, is that the polls suggest almost half of voters, and this is a blanket, almost half would support the former president running again. So he definitely needs to get this, this moving now. Uh, and the midterms and the buildup into that is an opportune time for really getting this underway. And even though it's going to be, as, as you said, quite concentrated, to a certain political view, that's fine. They're the people he really needs to G up and get back on the side again. 
And the key payoff there for me is that the Western, more left-leaning press will definitely still be reporting about what he's saying on that social platform without these users on the left being on the platform. So it kind of, they don't, this doesn't need to be like an open thing with everyone on it, like Twitter as a free open place. It can be quite lopsided to Trump kind of all out supporters. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely tactical. Okay, so the other big SPAC deal, of course, in the headlines today was WeWork. And when I saw it, I was like, are these guys still alive? <laughs> but evidently so. And I know for sure, I'm, I'm sure the founder got a nice tasty little payday. But um, what was the deal with, with WeWork? And how does that tie into the SPAC space? Yeah, so WeWork, uh, back from the dead, uh, seen when coronavirus hit and it just pretty much destroyed their business model. Uh, but yeah, they're still around. And they've just gone public uh, via a SPAC kind of similar to Trump's Trump's outfit. And they surged actually uh, more than 13% in, in their debut. And this is kind of two years now after their failed IPO. Um, so kind of comparing an IPO versus a SPAC, the IPO process is long, it's arduous, it's you know really talking to a lot of investors as they kind of pick apart your business model to get an allocation. Um, and SPACs, it's a much more uh, speedy way of going public where there's not that kind of scrutiny. Uh, you're able to also file things like forward-looking projections in an S3 versus a filing called an S1, which is only kind of historical financials and things like that. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the office startup, WeWork, they basically halted their plans in 2019 um, for an IPO. And do you know how much they were valued in 2019? I don't know, but a hell of a lot more than what they're valued today. That's for they sure. Were, they were valued at 47 billion okay. in 2019. How much are they worth now? 9 billion. Uh, I think they're, they're around 9 to 10 billion now. So it's massive drop um, from that 47 billion, but it's no surprise. There was a lot of trouble, uh, lots of Wall Street Journal articles about Newman's kind of just general conduct and how he managed the company, including possible legal, uh, illegal activities. Uh, but yeah, he got a really nice package. He also, I think, made 1 billion from this back in addition. Uh, and he's still walking around uh, in bare feet, just as he did. So at least he's not changed um, from that perspective. But with that, with all that being said, and us kind of making fun of WeWork a little bit, they're back. The city's back. You know, the city of London's back. And desk occupancy is up to 60% now uh, in WeWork offices. So this flex space, as much as we kind of wrote it off, is really benefiting from this kind of new normal that we're in at the moment. So like, just like us, Ant, we're in two, three days a week. We travel into the city. We've obviously got an office, but the rest of the time we're at home. So for those that don't have an office or are opting for this kind of flexible working, flexible space, hybrid approach then you know, WeWork's the perfect model if you want an hour, three hours a day, you know, mm -hmm. two days in a week. So the pandemic recovery really has accelerated this demand for flexible workspaces you know, because of this shift towards hybrid. Um, so you know, their cash situation is looking a lot better. I think it's improved by about 1.6 billion. So the future is looking a bit more optimistic, I'd say, for, for WeWork. Um, so yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. It's good to see them back. 
Okay, cool. Well, look, let, let's uh, move it on because there's two other areas I wanted to cover. And the first one is Bitcoin, but specifically these Bitcoin ETFs that have launched this week. So the first one being the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF. And that accumulated over a billion US dollars in just two days of trading. So we're into the third day um, at the moment. And that ranks the investment vehicle as one of the top ETF launches in history. And there's more to follow. I think Valkyrie is another one that goes live today. There's others in the pipeline. But just to get us all on the same page here, I think it's appropriate to just go over what is an ETF um, and, and how is that used and who uses them typically? Yeah, so ETF standing for exchange traded funds um, essentially is a, a basket or a wrapper of different holdings in different stocks. Uh, so, you know, some of the most popular ones are things like SPY and VU. They're generally offered by outfits like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, for example. Uh, and essentially, this gives you a really, as an investor, a really easy way of owning, for example, the S&P 500. So rather than going in, buying all the different individual companies uh, of the S&P 500, for example, and of course, paying the transaction fees and things like that on them, this ETF or this exchange traded fund wrapper allows you to get really quick uh, exposure uh, to a basket of particular securities. And it's not just stocks. Um, it's bonds, you know, you can get sector and industry ETFs, you can get commodity ETFs, you can get certain styles like large, large cap value, small uh, cap growth, you can get actively managed ETFs, uh, inverse ETFs. Um, so there's a wide range of different products, but they've been, you know, super popular, um, you know, over the years, and it's really catapulted BlackRock uh, and your vanguards to, to stardom. Um, so they're, you know, the appeal of them is essentially that they're, they're really easy to trade. You can buy and sell at any time of the day. Um, they're super transparent in the sense of when you buy them, it's, you know what they're, they're holding. So usually their, pub, their, their holdings are published daily. Uh, they can be really tax efficient as well. However, there are some concerns, I think, about the Bitcoin tax efficiency, um, but I'm definitely not a tax expert, so we're not going to go into that. But um, and there's, you know, they're relatively low cost as well. So, you know, some ETFs have kind of a cost uh, of 40 basis points, so really um, kind of quite cheap. Uh, and it's a great way of getting exposure to a certain style, you know, or a certain industry. What this means for the crypto space and why this is such a watershed moment, if you like, is there's never been a Bitcoin ETF. And what this opens up is really more institutional flow and more institutional demand, because there will be certain investment companies, investment you know, vehicles, asset managers, et cetera, pension funds that simply, according to their investor policy statements and just the way they run the fund, will not be allowed to buy and sell crypto. It's just written in their kind of contractual obligations. Whereas with an ETF that is regulated, you know, and there's, there's a market for it, of course, more liquidity and things like that, then this opens up, you know, certain funds to be, be like, oh, we couldn't invest in out, the outright Bitcoin, for example, but now we can trade ETFs uh, and there's, you know, a good, good, good amount of liquidity there. Um, so it's really uh, a positive for the crypto space from an in institutional perspective. Yeah, and on, and on that point, 
I, I certainly definitely agree with that perspective. But in the near term, you know, these portfolio managers, these fund managers, I mean, they will want to see the dust settle, I'm sure, before jumping into specifically a new product like this. And some of the reports back from this week, even though that trading volume in the pro shares uh, ETF specifically has been pretty phenomenal to get things off. There's been, I saw Tom Lee commenting, who's quite an infamous kind of Bitcoin bull uh, and fund manager. And he was talking about 50 billion's worth of inflows coming in pretty rapidly. But a lot of the trading that's happened this week was dominated by smaller investors and high frequency trading firms is what was reported. So I guess we'll have to wait and see for that wider adoption um, and whether they get that buy-in from the more kind of traditional based investor. Um, but yeah, moving, moving it along, I wanted to talk a little bit about earnings and I was going to, I was going to try and not mention Squid Game and Netflix who did have their earnings this week and wow, 142 million member households have started watching Squid Game. What qualifies as watching I read was a two minute as long as they watch two minutes that classifies as watching but essentially that meant that their subscriber rate uh, for, for the quarter was 4.38 million a way above expectations of 3.72 million um, I find it hard to see them maintaining a squid game every quarter but their reinvestments outside of traditional focused areas like western american european tv they're definitely upping the ante and i'm sure they're going to squeeze dry now the korean movie industry for sure um and then there's tesla and tesla was the one i, I wanted to talk to you about because i i have a little space for tesla on my screens where i keep an eye on their stock price and i've just been watching it go up up and then up some more <laughs> and actually it's up seven percent on the week and it's up 65%, as I said earlier, from the lows we were printing just a few months ago. Now, they had their earnings, uh, and they were solid EPS, uh, a beat 186 against 167. Revenues actually looked a little bit on the soft side, but I guess it's gross margins that, that you could comment on. And just generally, what's, what's fueling this recovery in, in Tesla at the moment? Yeah, so to put it simply, Tesla's killing it at the moment it was actually the first conference call without elon musk you know traditionally he's been the face of tesla and he's you know he's done his thing and he's now passed it on i think quite maturely you know yeah. from from my perspective to say look i've done my job now with the marketing and all these kind of publicity you can call them stunts but he's a genius he's now passed them on to the management team the cfo so he he took the call um, and they're, they're absolutely killing it. They delivered 241,391 vehicles for the quarter. Um, and this is a 73% year-on-year increase in vehicle deliveries. Um, so they're really scaling production. They had a record 3.2 billion cash flow. And what that means over the last 12 months is that cash flow from their core business is actually around 10 billion now. That's four times the 2019 figure. So Tesla is a kind of scalable business model. They've kind of invested so much in CapEx to scale this operation. Now they're just firing on all cylinders and they're really taking advantage of this economies of scale and really pulling the operating leverage. Um, so their gross margins without regulatory credits hit 29% 
which is seriously impressive. Uh, 15 percent oper operating margins. They're actually at the point now where they actually retired some 2025 debt, 1.8 billion of it. So not only are they, you know, producing cash, they're now deleveraging, if you like, and paying off some of this leverage. So those that say, you know, Tesla super leverage, etc., they were doing it to fund their operations. They spent another 1.8 billion in capex, uh, investing for the future, and they're really now aiming for this. 50% compound annual growth uh, every year. Um, and, you know, lots of positive things coming out of that call. Um, the 2022, uh, so the year next year, Austin factory in Berlin factory production uh, is going to be starting. And hopefully, you know, they're, they're looking to get um, delivered vehicles there. More people are, you know, picking fully self-driving. There's actually also 150,000 uh, drivers now using their safety score uh, with 100 million miles driven. And this is, I think, start, it's only in Texas at the moment. Um, but this, the goal of this, uh, you know, um, is essentially to provide personalized insurance rates um, for drivers. So with their kind of uh, fully self-driving and their personalized insurance, they're able to then basically lower the cost of ownership for Tesla owners by you know using a metric like the safety score which is really really interesting um you know the safer you drive measured by this tesla the cheaper it is for your insurance um so you know that's that's in uh texas at the moment um but yeah it's all about operating leverage and just you know the costs are, the op the cost margins are falling uh, and they're just starting to pump out vehicles and they're looking to scale production as i mentioned in 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 austin texas and uh, in Berlin. So it's looking really, really promising uh, for Tesla at the moment. Uh, for the long term, for someone like Tesla then, so on two fronts, the fact that we've had an energy crisis just happen, for example, and the fact that Tesla now, as you say, is firing all cylinders, is this somewhat, in a sense, going to generate more movement for their competitors to accelerate their plans? One thing I read this week was that while while Tesla are having their earnings, Elon Musk is jumping on the conference call of Volkswagen this week. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure why he was doing that, but there was a video call and Musk was on with 200 VW execs at the invitation of the German car maker CEO who wanted to really fire up the EV team at VW and Musk agreed to join that call. And so I guess one of the questions here is that, you know, I guess longer term, I just wonder whether that's actually by performing very well, they're building a bit of a rod for their own back because it means that it just kicks the backside of the others to get to get that um, in place. And yeah, it'd be interested to see how how they respond in, in time. Well, you know, according to most reports, you know, you know, some reports that Tesla are ten years ahead of some of their competitors in the traditional automaker space, and they're now making the investments that Tesla were making. 10 years ago. Okay. So, and I think just, just to highlight as well, this, this uh, kind of record quarter was in amongst all the supply chain worries as well. And the chip shortages and, you know, credit to the, the Tesla team for staying focused and really operating despite all of the labor shortages, supply chain worries that we had, but kind of, you're talking about the competitors. Tesla is now so far ahead 
you know, um, of, of these competitors, they need to get a move on, right? Mm. They need to be investing in ESG and investing in electric vehicles. And one thing the CFO said is they simply cannot basically produce cars fast enough. The demand for their vehicles and particularly electric vehicles is there. They just can't, you know, scale fast enough. So there's definitely a market for other car companies to operate there as well but they just need to get a move on and start producing these cars i think one also interesting future prediction uh for tesla that i was kind of thinking about is it's really about producing and then delivering all of these vehicles millions of vehicles every year and the next product i kind of see them releasing is potentially a small electric car if you think about you know a volkswagen up or something like that an electric low cost small electric car would then cater to another market right so they've got the the kind of model s3 xy etc they've got the cybertruck which uh, and i'm sure you'll be happy to hear got delayed again but i think the small a small electric car is something that tesla may may look at in the next few years Maybe I could pay for the upgrade and also get the humanoid to sit there and drive me around in my little small, nifty little Tesla vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, though, because my, my neighbor bought a Tesla and I was having a look at it. And I, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a little look into this. And I was looking at the consumer reports for Tesla vehicles and they're shockingly bad. They're really? a badly manufactured car is what these reports say. Out of 28 cars, they come 27th. In terms mm. of the, but that doesn't surprise me. They're a new company. And a lot of these car makers have been around for hundreds of years. Like, of course, the manufacturing of these products is probably going to be more robust. And um, I don't want to sound too bearish, Tesla, because that's obviously it's trending the other way. But yeah, it's just beyond these kind of, and this whole like auto driving um, situation that's coming to the forefront now as well. I just find it hard that anyone beyond a tech enthusiast or Tesla, I find it hard. Like for me, it's an ugly car. It's unreliable. It's badly manufactured. And so give me a decent matured manufacturer who can offer an EV equivalent. I'm buying the equivalent. And definitely because, I mean, you can't tell me Tesla's a good looking car. Do you think it's a good-looking car? Maybe it's just me. Well, uh, I, I, yeah. So some are less attractive. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but then, yeah, there's some. There is some sexy cars out there. If you look at the competitors, look at a Porsche Taycan, for example. Now that's a good-looking car, electric, but yeah, cost cost a bomb. Um, but there's <laughs> definitely space um, for those kind of, particularly the German automobile premier class, Mercedes, BMW, etc. Um, to, you know, yeah, get a foothold in this electric vehicle market because I think, you know, there's a huge total addressable market here, right? We, we know where we're heading towards net neutral and carbon neutral. There's a huge demand for electric vehicles. You know, my next car, I've been thinking I should buy an electric car, right? You know, depending mm -hmm. on the price and the, you know, cost benefit, but, you know, there's enough to go around for Tesla and other competitors. Yeah. For sure. And then the final one I just wanted to mention, uh, maybe just a brief point or two on, is PayPal, the online payment company, is in talks to acquire Pinterest for around 45 billion US dollars. And that would result in one of the largest corporate takeover deals of the year. And that's why I wanted to mention it. 
Uh, Pinterest on the announcement were up about 13%. PayPal declined a decent amount. So just, just that in itself, why does that happen? Um, just to get everyone up to speed. Why does the acquired firm rally and acquire a decline? Because it's very typical. Yeah, it, yeah. There's there's a textbook. Um, that's a textbook move. Uh, it often doesn't happen like that. Depends how the market interprets the deal. But uh, PayPal, of course, acquiring Pinterest. It's a use of cash for PayPal. And of course, there's shareholders that may not agree with this move that they're doing because it's not a you know natural move in my opinion. Uh, I was in Pinterest. Anthony knows for um, you know really since the IPO, um, and there was some more, I would say, better suited acquirers that I was looking at um, for a Pinterest, like a Facebook, for example. But of course, there's a huge amount of regulatory scrutiny along with that company. Um, but usually when you when you acquire a target uh, in an M&A transaction, you'll need to pay something called a control premium. So it's a premium above where the shares are trading at the market. Hypothetically speaking, if Pinterest shares are trading at $100, uh, PayPal may have to uh, pay $130, right, to to get this deal done, representing a 30% premium. So often you see the case that the acquirer share price drops on the announcement, the target uh, share price rises. Um, in terms of the you know the thesis and you know this deal, um, I kind of like it. Uh, I guess for for PayPal, Pinterest was hugely popular last year in amongst the. COVID pandemic, everyone was at home, scrolling through their phones, making housing adjustments and improvements. Um, and Pinterest is, I love the app. I think it's a great app. It's, um, you know, got a great user base, 450 million users scrolling through. And now they, they've really been working on their e-commerce, you know, basically purchases in-app. So you see something you like on Pinterest, you've maybe pinned it to your board, you want to buy it. You know, they've, they've been working on that e-commerce element. Um, and of course, PayPal likes the user number and maybe they can make an integration there. Um, and of course, it's a hot space if you think about, you know, the, the payment space, fintechs. Um, you know, I think you, you mentioned earlier, they acquired PD, which is a Japanese buy now, pay later, which is, again, uh, more of a, a buy now, pay later, pay like an, an Amazon, a firm partnership uh, and a Klarna, of course, hugely valu valuable private company. But it's more, um, you know, these payments companies looking to get users and integrate with kind of e-commerce brands uh, to that e-commerce trend that we're seeing. Yeah, I think I actually read uh, PayPal looking at opening a brokerage account as well and having a trading platform. So yeah, they're, they're all looking like the same, right? It's got, yep. you know, you've got a uh, cash app from Square, you've got the the trading apps there, you've now got Robinhood, and they'll, you know, obviously, they are a, a stock trading app, but they'll look to, in, you know, include crypto wallets and things like that. So they're all, it's, you know, the fintech space and the payment space, digital wallets is a hugely impressive and growing space. And the banks are worried, uh, the traditional banks. Cool. Well, that was a good summary and a good way to conclude. So, a uh, couple of reminders. For one, as I mentioned, I think in the previous couple of podcasts, we're on a mission to 100 Apple podcast ratings and reviews. Um, after my call to arms a few weeks ago, we managed to bump that number up. We're at 83 at the moment. We're aiming for 100 by year end. So with your help, we can do this. So if you've enjoyed the episode or enjoyed the channel, 
I'd hugely appreciate it. Jump on Apple, give us a rating review. That would be awesome. Also, as well, this week, we launched our Career Hack series. So you've just got to follow this podcast and we'll continue doing this, uh, a market wrap-up chat, myself hosting with one of the members of the team every Friday. But every Wednesday, we're going to drop a career hack, deep dive focused on one element of the application cycle, where I'm joined by our head of China who kind of covers that for Amplify, and he gives some fantastic tips and tricks on how to how to tackle those things. So that's it. Have a fantastic weekend or week whenever you listen to this episode. Thank you, Eddie, and we'll see you next time. So. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.